Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of Pseudo-Archaeology. Welcome to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 99. Tonight on the podcast, the Shroud of Turin. Is it a fake? What's the mystery behind the Shroud of Turin? The short answer is, it's a total fake. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and I'll be here tonight to guide you through the fakery and the fraud that is the Shroud of Turin. So, why have I chosen the Shroud of Turin? Well, for a couple reasons. Number one being it came up on my phone through one of the stations I was watching or one of the podcasts I was listening to. I can't really remember, but I saw it come up and I'm like, oh, right. We got to do this one. So what is the short answer? What What is the Shroud of Turin when somebody says that? You know, you want to know what that is. A shroud is just simply a sheet. And the Shroud of Turin purports to be the burial shroud of Jesus Christ, meaning that it was the sheet that was placed over his body after death. And that the image that happens to be on this sheet was emblazoned upon it when the energy of his resurrection occurred. It was like this energy blast that burned the image of Jesus onto this sheet. And the reason why it's called Shroud of Turin is because the shroud itself is stored in a church in Turin, Italy, where it's been for centuries. So as I said in the in the hook there. Is this a fake? Of course it is. And this is one of those ones, man, where it's like, just look at it. Just look at it. Don't your fake alarms go off when you look at the image of the face of the Shroud of Turin? Doesn't it play to every cliche? You know, like it's so overdone that if it wasn't a religious icon, we would laugh it off and look at it and go, dude, have you seen that fake like the strategy and look at that? Oh, my God, what a fake. But we don't because it because it's cloaked in this religious situation where we think we have to have some sort of reverence or something because people happen to believe in something that's wrong. So I find that something that's really important for us to do tonight is just break this down, you know, break this down into the meaningful parts, the real history about it. And let's delve into the real kind of interest of the Shroud of Turin because the Shroud of Turin is interesting. It's actually a really, really cool story. 
So how am I involved in the Shroud of Turin? I obviously didn't do the work on the Shroud of Turin. I have, didn't find the Shroud of Turin. I've never even seen the Shroud of Turin in person. So am I the fraud? Sort of, but not really. When I think of the Shroud, I think of this conversation I had on a plane. And the backstory was... So I'm flying home from somewhere and I can't remember. It was probably Belize. I All I remember is it was a really long flight and it was a long time ago. This is like 20 years ago. And I know when I said that, it, you guys are like, Kinkella, don't you have any new stories? Maybe last decade, dude, that would be good. No, I guess apparently not. So I'm on this long flight and, uh, you know, right when you get on the plane, you're kind of looking and you're hoping you get a decent seat and you're hoping that like maybe maybe no one's going to sit next to you at all. And I look to where my seat's going to be and there's this woman sitting there. And she looks like a nice person, you know, so I'm like, that's cool. She looks she looks nice and kind and seemed to be relatively a positive person. You know, how you just kind of get this vibe. So I walk onto this plane and I sit down next to her and you guys, I'm tired. It's one of those ones where I think I'd already been traveling and I was just really wiped out. And even though the woman looked nice, she looked like a talker. You know what I mean? Like somebody who's going to talk to you about stuff. And I was kind of like in my head, I'm like, oh no, she looks nice, but she looks like a talker, man. I don't want to talk. Oh, I'm so tired. I just want to like be able to close my eyes. But I sit down and yes, she's, she starts to talk to me. And one of the first things she asks is like, so what do you do? And I'm like, oh no, gonna have to say the archaeology thing. So I'm like, I'm an archaeologist. And she's like, archaeology? And I'm like, uh, yep, yes, friend, archaeology. And honestly, you know, I, I'm very happy when people ask me about it. And, and, I, and I want to be good to the general public about that kind of stuff. It just, it hit me at that time when I was really tired. And I just, I, I really wanted to close my eyes. I was so tired. But I wanted to stick up for the general public. So I went with it. You know, I'm like, yeah, archaeology. And then she's like, oh, so you must have worked in Jerusalem. And I'm like, oh, no, because when you're an archaeologist, you know where this is going. This is going to be a religious conversation. And so I just answer. I'm like, nah, you know, no, I actually work in the Maya world and ancient Maya pyramids in the jungle. And that's that's what I enjoy. But she stayed on the Jerusalem thing. And it turned out very quickly that she was extremely religious. This is somebody who believed in a 6000 year old earth. Right, the whole deal, Bible as absolute factual truth. And she kind of starts going into it, right? Like, oh, uh, well, you know, there's there's these religious icons, and that proves this. And I and I'm getting tired and I want to be cool, but I go, you know what? I have to be honest with you. I don't believe in God. You know, and she's kind of like. You don't? Well, you surely believe. I'm like, no, not even a little, not even a tick. So she took it on herself to save my soul during that plane flight. 
through religion. And I have to say, she was very kind and very upbeat. And then I, with oddly newfound energy, took it on myself to save her through science. So we started to have this long conversation drawn out, very energetic and very positive. I want to double down on that. It was a, this is a positive conversation. It was not like angry or crotchety. We were like smiling through the whole thing. And I thought it was really great because we were like respectful back and forth. I mean, we stated our honest opinion, but we were like respectful. And it really got into it. Like, I remember at one point she busted out a napkin. She was talking about the resurrection. She busted out a napkin and started drawing stuff on it. And then I drew stuff on it. I'm like, no, it's kind of more like this. And she's like, no, well, I, I, I see it as more like this. And she's talking about the res resurrection and the father, the son and the Holy Ghost, all, all that kind of stuff, which honestly, as a sidebar, I never understood until I watched Bill Maher's Religious. And the guy who plays Jesus in Religious, Bill Maher goes to see like a religious show. And the actor who's playing Jesus in this religious show busts it down to say, hey, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are like the three stages of matter, solid, liquid, and gas. And so that, that you guys, is when I learned how those three entities, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, kind of go together. I thought that made a ton of sense. So anyway, back to the napkin. We're drawn on the napkin. And it's really getting hot and heated. And I'm sure the other passengers on the plane watching us after a while were probably like, oh, God, you guys, just get a room. You know, it was one of those things where we were really into it and really like and talking. It was a really great conversation. And then she goes, what about the Shroud of Turin? And I'm like, yeah, it's a fake. And she's like, no, it's not. And I'm like, yes, it is. That Carbon 14 dated that thing. And she goes, I know. And I'm like, don't you believe in carbon 14? And she's like, yeah, I believe in carbon 14. Sure. Car carbon 14 is where, you know, you guys take a sample of things and you, you burn up the sample and it comes back and you have a, a date plus and minus every something like she knew she knew a lot about carbon 14. And it was great. I'm like, I'm like, yes, you're, you're proving my point for me. Like the, the shroud was dated and it came back, you know, in about 1300 AD or so. And, and she's like, yes, I know. And I'm like, okay, then what are we, what are we arguing about? It looks like we're coming together that the shroud was dated at 1300 and that's way too young, but interesting. It's not brand new. It's, it's like 700 years old. Um, you know, I, I I'm like, that has its own interest. Well, what's our problem? And she's like, well, they dated a part that was repaired. And I'm like, oh, God, no, no, they did not. When she said it was the repaired piece, you're like, this will never end. But we did continue our conversation. And we'll talk about that after this break. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 99, The Shroud of Turin. So we were talking about the setup for the shroud and how I came into kind of talking about it and my trip on an airplane with a woman who was trying to convince me that the shroud was real. Let's take a minute and talk about the, the nuts and bolts of the shroud and the history of the shroud. So what is the shroud? As we established before, the Shroud of Turin is supposed to be specifically the burial shroud of Jesus. 
but it's made out of flax, which is linen, right? And it's, it's long. It's like 15 feet long by about four feet wide. And that's because it goes over both sides of the body. Right. I didn't know that until recently, but it's so that's why it's so long. Like if you're laying on the table, you put the, the sheet down first, you put the body on it and then you fold it over the top. So it has an imprint of the front of the body and the rear of the body. And of course, it's about four feet wide. So you have enough room for the body itself. On this, there's an image, right? That's purportedly of Jesus. It's very light. It's a very thin image. You can kind of almost that you it's one of those you can almost miss. Unless, unless you look real close. And if you look real close, you can see it. And honestly, you can see it much better as a photo negative. One of the big kind of aha moments for the shroud was, I believe, in the it was in the 19th century when early photography, they took a photo negative of the shroud. And they're like, wow, because it, it comes out a lot better then. And besides there being this image of the body and, and the body's just laying there, hands kind of crossed in front. It also has what are purported to be blood stains at the crucifixion points. And looking more closely, the image of the man, if you measure him, is six feet tall. Huh. Six feet tall. 33 AD. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? And the weave of the flax is in a style that's super common in the 1300s and super not common at all slash didn't exist in the early years AD. So just with the setup, you get everything right there. It's a, well, it's a fake. But let's look at the history, just in case you don't believe me. So there's no mention of the fake until it first came up in France in 1354. Isn't that cool? 1354, that's a long time ago. This is old. And a couple years after that, in 1389, it was called a fake. The people in the 1300s thought it was a fake. And also, it was from a time when a lot of religious icons were being, you guessed it, faked. Because there were charlatans in the past. I, I, I don't mean to your feelings about your past ancestors but well they lied just as much as we do so and that's what makes it so cool right that that this this fake it is again first encountered in the 1350s it's called out as a fake in 1389 but people won't go for it how many times have you heard this in the pseudo-archaeology world right you know atlantis or any of the others where it is initially thought of as a fake, but it's kind of brought back and brought back and brought back. Again, it's magical thinking because people want it to be true. Anyway, they keep it around. Time goes on. In 1532, it's damaged in a fire in France. Again, it's in France during this during all these early, early times. And it's repaired by nuns in the 1530s. In 1578, it's moved from France to a cathedral built specially for it in Turin, Italy. So since 1578, it's been in this cathedral in Turin, Italy. So hence the name Shroud of Turin. And ever since then, what is that? 1578, 16, so for, for over 400 years, the church has done the same dog and pony show where they put it on display for a little bit and then they hide it. And then they put it on display for a little bit and then they hide it. You know, and that has literally been going on for 400 years. It's also been re repaired every so often 
So the initial fire damage, and that's why when you look at the shroud, if you if you see an image of it, there's these little triangular like like burn parts. You'll see it, and you can tell the fire damage happened when the shroud was folded up. Right, it was like it was folded up and like one corner got burned. So it's repaired in 1694. Repaired in 1868, and actually in 2002. They took off all the old repairs and they really kind of jazzed it up for the for the modern age. Right. They basically brought it back down to original because I think in the the ethos of today, you know, we prefer things not to be overly repaired or, you know, when it comes to like a painting or, or anything like that, we prefer just for it to show its natural wear and tear. So that's what they did. Now. In terms of the carbon 14 date, that was done in 1988. And first, I can't believe the church agreed to do this, you know, because this is like, this is the put up or shut up moment. And you guys, I didn't know, I knew it had been dated, but I didn't know how well it was dated because it was dated great in terms of the technology used in terms of the sort of double blind testing used they did a fantastic job in 1988 uh with the dating i wish my carbon 14 dates for my archaeological sites were dated as well as they dated the shroud i'm telling you they spared no expense they left no stone unturned they did a excellent job what do i mean by that so First, they did AMS dating, which is the more precise, sort of better method. We don't need to get into carbon-14 dating methods, but AMS, AMS stands for accelerator mass spectrometry. And what it gets you is just a, is a better, more specific, narrower date, which is what you always want. So what these guys did, they basically, they came in in 88, they got a linen specialist to make sure they took a original piece of the shroud and a linen specialist is going to know that in like two seconds, right? Like which part is new and which part has been repaired. They are not going to mess that up. Trust me. And I know people who specialize in different kinds of artifacts in the archaeological world. And, and a specialist in that is not going to screw up something that easy. So my point there being that the, the person who I talked to on the plane, right. Trying to tell me that, Oh, well, they dated one of the repair parts. That is utterly false. So the specialist picks the special part to cut out and they allowed it because you have to cut out a piece. Carbon 14 only works with, with an actual piece of the object that you're dating. And that piece, you will burn up. It burns up into nothingness and you get the date. The carbon 14 is basically released in the burning process. So. They, the linen specialist picks it and then they send, they split it up into thirds and they send three separate labs in three separate countries, each a piece of the shroud. It is not called the shroud. It's just labeled like sample B, meaning there is no way that the lab they send it to even knows what it is. They just, labs get this stuff all the time. So they're just going to date it, go on with it. Good to go. Dates come back. They all line up. And it dates from between 1260 to 1390 AD. And that range, what is that? Let's see, 1360s, 130 years range. That's very typical in, in archaeology, right? And the way we report these is that range from 1260 to 1390. What we're saying is we can tell with a 95% accuracy that 
that piece dates to that area of time. And of course, right there, you see what the pseudo-archaeologists are going to say. They're going to be like, oh, 95%? What about the magical 5%? And you guys, in reality, that never happens. Science just covers its ass again and again and again. And I mean that in a very positive sense, meaning they say 95%, but that's like at least, meaning it's usually much better. And shockingly enough, the dates of 1260 to 1390 Hey, the shroud was first reported historically in 1354, right in the middle of these dates. So everything lines up. Everything lines up. They even had a guy who was a specialist in art of that time. And he looked at it and just, you know, hey, what do you think of the image of Jesus here based on the stylistic aspects of it? And he guessed, he's like, yeah, about 1100. Give or take. He guessed a tick young, but still it shows like right in there. That is excellent data. And the stylistic guy knows what he's talking about, meaning that when you look at that face of Jesus, you know, that's, you know, quote unquote emblazoned on there. It wasn't emblazoned. That it is of that time. Absolutely. So everything comes together, right? So, and stylistic will tell you a lot because art styles change over time. When you look at things in your everyday life, you know, you can, you can tell if a car is from the 1980s or the 2010s based on its style, right? You can tell if clothing is from certain eras based on its style. And you can't get it to the year, but you can get it to a decade or two. You know, and as you go back in time, it gets a little more broad. So that's how the guy who was a specialist in art of that time, that's how he knows. Of course, when this data comes out, massive excuses immediately from the church and from others. They're all pissed, right? They double down on their belief and their belief is wrong. So they go with the, the thing that the woman told me on the plane. That's their number one. Oh, well, they dated a repaired piece. They didn't. It's long been proven false. The other thing is, it was contaminated some way, like, like the oils from the skin of somebody, you know, they contaminated the sample. Now, in reality, that kind of stuff can happen, but not to this degree. Like if you have like a teeny bit of contamination and they would have dealt with that in the lab, I'm telling you, you guys. So it's, it's a non-issue, but, but let's say it doesn't. Cause again, I've sent samples to a lab. I know how they clean stuff beforehand. You know, I'm, I, I know this world. And so this is a non-issue, but let's, let's say it was, it wouldn't mess up your date by like 1300 years and, and you would need so much contamination. It would be obvious. It would be like the piece of linen would be encased in like a rock of dirt. <sighs> and then finally, they also have this like carbon monoxide thing where they're like, ah, the fires over time, there was so much carbon monoxide in the air that it messed up the, the carbon 14 content of the shroud. And that is just absolutely untrue it don't work that way and this stuff is, is very classically what pseudo-archaeologists do they take kind of half truths and push them you know so it puts the onus on me where i have to describe to you guys like what the real deal is you know it's a, it's a great trick for them to be like oh well, well it was contaminated isn't it true kinkella that samples can be contaminated but I have to take a while to be like, well, yes, you know, they can be contaminated. But in reality, it's no big deal. Then they, they just go, see, see, he's wrong. It's like, no, no, I'm right. 
because I know science. You know that thing that works? You know that thing that gives you real dates? Yeah, that thing. <sighs> when we get back, how the shroud was actually made. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 99, The Shroud of Turin. So, how was the shroud made, right? How was this fake done? Now, one thing that really bugs me, and if you can tell anything from this podcast, I'm bugged a lot, is when you Google, like, how shroud was made, construction of shroud of Turin, all that comes up is pseudo-archaeology BS. Like, it's actually really hard to Google and find real experiments and the real answer. Like, what I noticed when I Googled it, the biggest thing that came up, there was a headline from the Daily Mail from 2011 that says, Turin Shroud was created by a flash of supernatural light. It couldn't be a medieval forgery, says scientists. That's the headline. A total crock. It's wrong. What do you mean, says scientists? What scientists? The one that the church bought. Ugh. Right? Regular scientists would never say that. Had to be created by... It, it couldn't be a medieval forgery. Had to be a flash of supernatural light. Give me a break. But I don't blame people. You know, for maybe thinking that, because if you Google it, that's all that comes up. Or the other one that you hear all the time. How was Shroud of Turin created? An energy release. No! No! <laughs> so how was it made? It was, it was actually figured out doing experimental archaeology, which is something I love. I love experimental archaeology. Experimental archaeology is where we recreate things of the past today just to see how they work like if i'm curious how good an arrowhead is i'll make a new one that looks exactly like the one from a thousand years ago and i'll shoot it with a bow and arrow and see if it works and so it, it takes out all the bs it takes out all the guesswork right you just make one and then you show it you go look it works and everyone goes okay experimental archaeology is great so they did two things they've actually done a bunch of things with the shroud and of course they can't use the real shroud. They can't even look at the real shroud, right? So everyone gets on scientists like, oh, well, you don't know how the shroud was really made. You're not 100% sure. And it's like, yeah, we can't be 100% sure because you'll never show us the actual shroud. It's like if you needed work on your car, if you were like, yeah, man, my engine isn't working very well. Well, uh, yeah, I'd like to fix your car. Can you show it to me? No. But here's a uh, picture of my car, and here's a one-minute recording of my engine. Fix my car. Right? That is exactly what scientists have to do, because the church has learned from its mistakes. You think it's going to let scientists do stuff after the carbon-14 debacle of 1988? Hell no. Right? They're not dumb. So... These scientists have to figure out why your car isn't working, if it's bad gas, if it's the injectors, if it's the spark plugs, if it's other engine issues, based on a picture you took 10 years ago of your car and a recording you made six months ago, right? Can't actually see the real car, 
but got a guess from that. So you can see that in that example, if you hear a car's engine missing, you can, you can be like, dude, it's probably one of these three, you know, but the pseudo archeology span crowd is going to get down on you. You don't really know why the car is not working. Yeah. You won't show me the car. So experimental archeologists have done a great job first in terms of how you get the image on the linen in the first place. So what they've done is they've taken a blank piece of linen. They got somebody to uh, lay down on a table. They put the linen over them and then they put some pigment over the linen. So this isn't paint. A lot of times you'll hear people say, but it's not paint. Yeah, it's not paint. It's like, think of, think of just like that sandy kind of granular pigment you can put on stuff like making a rubbing. You know, it's very similar to that. I've seen that in the Maya world where I work, where people will make rubbings of Maya Stella. They'll put a big piece of paper and then they'll use like graphite and they'll make a rubbing. You know, or you've done this as a kid, made a rubbing on something where the image kind of comes up. Same thing here. It's, it's a body size rubbing. So they put the pigment in. The pigment's got a tiny bit of acid in it. They rub it on there. Then they shake it off and then they cook it. They like put it in an oven for like half an hour to age it a little and then after they do that, you have the image on there. Then they put the quote unquote bloodstains on there in the key areas. So they use this initial pigmentation thing and then they gussy it up a little with some art, right? You, you draw, you could even use real blood, but I don't think they did. And they put it in the key areas, you know, on the hands and on the, on the feet. That's how it's done. Right. And this is so typical. I've seen so many frauds and forgeries done exactly like this, where it's a combination of one or two tricks, because remember, the forger is going for the look. That's what matters. It's not going for some specific style or using only paint or only pigment or whatever. They're going for like, we got to make this look like it was like the light of God, you guys. What are we going to do? And of course, they're going to a lot of times people will cook things or burn things a little to give it that aged look, right? You need that sort of browned aged look. And so that's what they did. There you go. Right? How hard is that? But the church ain't too happy with uh, letting people like me in to do real experiments. So you have uh, people doing experimental archaeology on the linen. They also did a great one on bloodstains, and showed that the blood patterns on the shroud are totally wrong. If you actually had a victim who was bleeding from the wrists and from the ankles, you know, like that, the blood patterns on the shroud would be all over the place. They wouldn't just be all super nice right, right where the wound is. Think about it if you cut yourself really bad. Right. It gets all over the place. You know, it's like, oh, man, I need a couple more band-aids. Oh, damn it. I got it on my pants. Oh, wait. Oh, I was carrying my bag and I got it on the handle. Right. The blood kind of goes. It just gets on any everything. It's not just some little nice blot. Right. That's done to draw your eye to the wrists and, and to the ankle area. Right. So you go, oh, yes, I see. Yes, this must be the shroud of Jesus, because they're giving you the, the bits that your mind wants, right? They're playing to your wants. Classic pseudo-archaeology. This is what you want, right? And you want Jesus of the 1300s to look in this manner. So this is a 1300s Jesus, which has its own interest. 
Now, the part that I always come to, so what do I think in the end? I want to know what was going on in 1350. That's the great story. Is this the Shroud of Jesus? Of course not. But it is an awesome fake. What's happening in 1350? Who actually did it? Where did the shroud first come up? It seems to have come up in France, you know, somewhere. What are other examples in the local area, right? What's its early story? That's the awesome part. Who are the criminals, right? Who done it? That's what's the great story here, you know? And, and this is old. Remember, this is pre-Columbus, right? 1350? Man, 650 years old, you know? That's great. And some fakes like this can have their own, their own history. And that's fine. We can enjoy these. So in the end, what happened with me and the woman on the flight? We ended our conversation on the Shroud of Turin. And we parted as friends. And with that, I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.